I got to interview Jim Neighbors. Um, I was writing for a TV Guide's website, and I interviewed him. He was living at his macadamia ranch in Hawaii, and he was a very nice guy. I forget what we were interviewing him about, but uh, at the end of the call, he said, uh, well, you know, you should come visit me at the at the ranch. And <laughs> I was like, I said, well, oh, well, thank you. You know, just figuring he's just being nice. And he said, no, you're in New York. You could go right to Newark Airport. And I, <laughs> I had been talking with this man for maybe, you know, 20 minutes. And uh, yeah, and all of a sudden I was being invited. I, I really should have taken him up on it. That was a missed opportunity. Did you seriously consider that offer? I, you know, I guess briefly I did, but, you know, at the same time, it just felt a little weird to me, you know, just going out to Hawaii to be with Jim Neighbors alone on his macadamia ranch. I mean, I, you know, I might never be heard from again. Yeah. But I mean, as far as going on podcasts in 30 years, um, much better story <laughs> that I didn't take Jim Neighbors up on the off. <laughs> I'm kind of amazed sort of looking at the early trajectory of your career, the the number of opportunities that were afforded to you with this really this really strange and singular cable access show. Well, you know, if you were living in New York at that time, um there I, I don't know how singular we were. <laughs> there was a lot of very well, there was a lot of very strange programming on public access back then it was great it was a it was really rich with all sorts of eccentrics with their own shows and um so we went into that environment um something as a tribute almost to these shows and thought it would be fun to just kind of slip in between them and be yet another one of those but maybe offer a little something more and maybe a little more confusion about what we were what we were doing was real and what was not real and yeah we were we were having fun with it i mean it is clearly an homage you know right down to the fact you will have people from those shows on and and that there are several instances where you did reference some of the other shows that were happening at time and and those are those and the beauty of youtube right now is those are other those are other rabbit holes that you can continue to go down but i mean you were you obviously, I assume David as well. I probably most of the crew were pretty self-aware uh, to varying degrees. Um, uh, you know, I think uh, David, who you know my co-host on the show, um, uh, has his share of eccentricities. You know, um, um, uh, sometimes people will you know talk to me, friends, whatever, and say, "Well, you know, you're weird." too right and and i'm like well no wait what <laughs> you know so um you know i i guess uh um uh we we did have some awareness for sure about the the um uh, probably a little more awareness than some of the other public access hosts that we were sharing the channel with but um but i think yeah we we had our own uh, peculiarities in our own ways <laughs> Insofar as you're able to talk about them, what David's peculiarities were, is he really sort of the strong, silent type, the way he is on the show? Uh, no, David. David is uh, uh, he does he does speak, and he um, uh, you know we met back at uh, NYU. We were going to school together, and he was actually 
showed up in my very first class. Um, I made the mistake of taking introduction to philosophy, thinking that, um, you know, oh, I'll broaden my mind. Uh, I had no idea what was going on in there. The teacher was talking about, will this chair still be in the room when we leave? And I, I just, I, I have a hard time with those kinds of discussions. Conceptual. So, um, <laughs> yeah. And, um, and David was in that class. Uh, now, David, on the other hand, you know, loved that class and excelled in that class. And, um, um, but he was this, you know, ex- very tall guy that would show up carrying his Barnes and Noble book bag. And he would always, um, show up at the class about five minutes before the ending bell. And, you know, so the professor would be speaking and we'd all be in this big lecture hall. <laughs> And David would come in five minutes before the end uh, while the professor's speaking and, you know, with his tall, lanky body would walk all the way up to the back of the classroom and sit down and the class would be over. And he did this consistently every uh, class. So I, even in high school, was uh, attracted to eccentrics and and uh, I would, um, you know, embrace a lot of eccentrics that I would meet uh, going to talent shows. And and I was looking for a lot of that in entertainment and enjoying people like Tiny Tim and, and like that. So it was kind of natural that I struck up a conversation with David. Uh, and he, he, he we wound up, uh, I eventually joined the uh, student humor magazine, The Plague, and David was active in the student organizations too. So, um, so we ended up just hanging out a lot together in school and, um, and the, the character that he played on the show kind of grew out of him in school, kind of playing around with these characters, you know, he would, uh, he would call himself Mr. Serious, um, and no one could get through to him. You know, you try talking to him and he'd give very serious responses and that might go on for, you know, a day. Um, then there was Mr. Very Serious and he was really curt. And, and, um, so, you know, when it came time to do the show, it was like, oh, why don't we have Mr. Serious, you know, be, be the co-host. And, um, and then that's, that's kind of how we, Got together on that. I mean, he's not only has a hair trigger, but is also prone to violence on the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, he he was prone to violence uh, at times, more to my liking. Um, and I, but there was no, there was no controlling what David would do on the show, and and. Um, so sometimes it would, you know, get uncomfortable, like, uh, truly uncomfortable. And, um, we had, uh, William Gaines on the publisher of Mad Magazine. It was a thrill for me and an honor to have him there. And at the end of the show, David was like getting into some fight with the puppets behind him. And he ended up like climbing up on the couch. Uh, on the back of the couch, right behind William Gaines, who was, this was about nine months before the man died. He was an older guy. And, and I'm just, <laughs> I'm trying to kind of keep things going, but trying to make that stop at the same time, hoping that he doesn't step on William Gaines. And uh, so, um, uh, yeah, that, that stuff was, um, uh, created some genuine tension. 
uh, on the show. I'm thinking of that uh, that famous Crispin Glover Letterman interview. Uh huh. <laughs> he has the the platform shoes on. I think he was also in character from a movie that he wasn't promoting at the time, and comes like dramatically close to Letterman's face with a with a kick. And that's there are certain things that you can watch, and and it's and it's clear that like you can't you can't this couldn't have been plans you know and and, and that and that and that this this was like not only on the fly but that the person was <laughs> risking grievous bodily harm in the process yeah yeah there definitely was that edge to david and you know but to speak with him in person he'd be very nice he would be very nice to the guests um prior to the taping um he would often um book the celebrity guests that we'd have on the show um I usually, the criteria was usually that they would have uh, their phone number listed in the phone book. Um, and uh, I'd pass it along to David and say, you know, David, work your magic. And he would call these people consistently and, and, um, I, and, and never take no for an answer. Well, he, he would, uh, he would reluctantly take no for an answer, but he would always be very nice to them. And, um, but yeah, he, if, if you were to speak with him in person, um, I, you know, you'd, you'd find him to be a pleasant, um, somewhat eccentric guy. And we can talk about Audville a little bit later, obviously a very different platform, but the spectrum of guests on Beyond Vaudeville is really incredible. There are some people who, you know, on the face of it, I make a lot of sense. Um, Joe Franklin, obviously, like uh, kind of a, a, a big deal in New York and in that world. And, and a hero of mine since childhood. I mean, I, I loved his show. You know, it just, you know, he, he instilled a lot of people from my generation who found him, uh, really got us interested in nostalgia and the idea of, of, you know, uh, um, a, a, guest couch that could include a wide variety of people uh, from all walks of life and, and interacting with everyone. And yeah. So yeah, I mean, it was, you know, part of what was so much fun for us doing the show was, was meeting these heroes, you know, um, he was one of them. (laughs) There's some people who are clear, like, just knowing what I know about this person, it's clear that they sort of understand what the joke is and they're there because, you know, Tom Arnold, Fred Willard, like in those cases, um, you, you know, you mentioned time, Tim, again, somebody who really makes sense in that world. But I watched two last night as a partial preparation for this conversation. They're two very different people. And I want to talk about both of them specifically and start with Soleil Moonfry who uh-huh. <laughs> was still very young. I don't even think, I think she was probably like 18 or 19 at the time. She was still relatively fresh off of Punky Brewster. Um, it, it's not entirely clear watching it, whether she kind of was in on it or was just really, really nice. Wow, what's going on over here? <laughs> David, let her know she'd be welcome. That David! Would be, uh, that would, would be I a be nice welcome? thing for you to do. Uh, I'd love it. Okay. <laughs> well, she was very nice. Um you know, when we would book people on the show, there it, it really would just be presented as you know it's it's going to be a talk variety show, and these are the guests we've had, and we had you know, over, especially over time, we would build up a, a nice guest list. We had two Oscar winners, uh, uh, Kim Hunter and Shirley Jones, and we had you know a bunch of accomplished people that were on the show. Imaging Coca, I mean, legends. You know, some of these people. 
you know, so, and, and there usually wasn't, uh, a lot of time with them hanging around. It would kind of be like, bring them into the studio. Okay. You're on, you know? <laughs> and, um, so, you know, in, in, in a lot of cases you kind of see, uh, their surprise as, as the, uh, guest lineup real time reaction to what's going on around them. Yeah. In many cases, um, occasionally, um, uh, one of the other guests would get to one of the celebrity guests before, um, we started rolling and that could be problematic sometimes. Um, we, we had a, a frequent, uh, guest on the show, William Brown, who, um, we build as our Renaissance man and, um, William is an eccentric uh, himself. He uh, he likes to count uh, out grooves on uh, vinyl record albums. Um, uh, he 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 would go into record stores in New York and just you know flip through um, uh, albums just to take them out and and take his pica ruler and measure the out grooves of, of the of each album. Um, he also uh knew every every model who ever appeared on the Benny Hill show you know and i think to most of us we think maybe there were you know a half dozen well no he had uh he had figured out every one of them that had ever appeared on the show and had this big stack of uh of um stat sheets on each one and um so he he had these interesting obsessions anyway i, I I digress, but um, the reason I bring him up is uh, we uh, were going to have as a guest uh, Kitty Carlisle Hart, who um, had you know been very accomplished. She by, at this point she you know had really risen to the top of society in New York, and she was like uh, on the the state arts board, and and you know she was she was in in her youth she was in a Marx Brothers movie. I mean she she really was accomplished, and um, uh, so we were setting up our our. Uh, set we always had you know a, just a few minutes to kind of get that set together uh one of the guys working on the show said rich uh, uh come here you gotta help uh uh william brown has uh kitty cornered in a kitty cornered <laughs> um and um so you know i ran over i had kitty's uh, autobiography i had just read it i always did my research you know and and uh i said oh miss hart it's such a pleasure to have you here and um you know so i was able to kind of pull her out of that situation but she had some hesitancy but then as i you know right before we went on i i you know had mentioned some of the things i had read in her book so she could tell i cared about her career and was interested in it and um so she uh she yeah she <laughs> so so she had a little awareness i guess uh when she came on one thing I've always sort of been curious about is whether there's an extent to which the the Frank Hope character almost works against you in that, you know, obviously not a professional interviewer. And I assume somebody comes on, somebody's won an Oscar, and there's this guy stammering through questions. Um it can probably be pretty difficult to break through. Yeah, it was a uh, it was a balancing act, you know, because um uh, you know, I I I really would research the guests as as best i could especially at the time we didn't have you know wide internet access and um but um so so you know i would go into those interviews with a lot of notes about them but at the same time we had the 
the three ring circus going on. You know, the puppets were there and uh, I had to make sure I had time to get Joey the monkey to come in and dance. And, and um, you know, so, um, so I think uh, um, a number of them, I, I hope, you know, could tell my intent was, was good. And, and I had the information in front of me. It was just, uh, you know, how well I'd be able to get to that information and still bring out the nose whistler. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, was the end product better if the guest was in on the joke? Um, I, uh, you know, it, it, it all depended on, on the type of person, you know, I think in, in, in the case of, uh, the late Fred Willard, who was just incredible, you know, and was another hero, uh, uh, from his firm with tonight show, you know, and, um, and, uh, uh, yeah, like in, in a case of, like Fred's or Tom Arnold, you know, they're comedians who, um, you, you know, really brought their game to the table. And same with like Professor Erwin Corey and, and uh, brother Theodore, you know, these, these really incredibly accomplished comedians who uh, saw the situation and then played with it. And, you know, we were the, we were the mouse to these cats, you know, <laughs> and, but then on on the other hand it it was interesting to have people that weren't quite prepared for that you know we had Austin Pendleton on who just seemed you know really confused by it all and 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 made for kind of an interesting interview and show i thought you know i i asked him something somewhere you know toward the end of the the show that he was on um you know, it, it, oh, you're having a good time, Mr. Pendleton. And and he just kind of stammered and said, um, I, 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 I'm not used to this. <laughs> you know, that that was, a, I, you know, to me, that's a, a more interesting response than what you see on a lot of talk shows, especially today, where it's like the questions and answers are just so tightly prepared and there's so much so much input by the the publicity teams for whatever projects being promoted. And, you know, so um, for me anyway, that kind of um, raw response is, is way more interesting to me as a viewer. I, confusion is better than anger. Yes. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't know that we ever had anyone truly, you know, angry with us. Um, um, we did have some guests, uh, um, leave, um, before even coming on the show, we, we had, uh, Karen Lynn Gorney was booked. Um, she was the actress from Saturday Night Fever. Um, and I think her grandfather wrote pennies from heaven or something. So it was all ready for the interview and, she came in and you know looked in our um in our little studio at what we were setting up and um she uh, told one of the guys um is there a soda machine here and they were like no is you know she said oh well let me uh, i'm going to go down the block and and get a soda and um i i don't know whether or not she ever got the soda but she never came back so it's like leaving to get a pack of cigarettes <laughs> Yeah. So I don't even remember what episode that was, but chances are there wasn't a celebrity guest on on that one. Uh, sometimes we'd have more than uh, one celebrity guest on a show. And that was usually because we 
feared one of them might not show up and we wanted to, you know, make sure we were, we had a backup. Um, and, uh, and who else? Oh, and Sammy Shore also had shown up, um, had a similar reaction. He looked around and he said, uh, uh, I'm not doing this shit. And he, um, and, but we had to start the show. We, the, the studio, we, we were always, uh, booked back to back to back with other shows. So it wasn't live, but you just had a window. C- correct. Yeah. And it was, but uh, I mean, it was, it was essentially live on tape. Like we never stopped, you know, and, and just go with whatever happened. And, um, and, uh, so it, it seemed like, you know, he wasn't going to, uh, cooperate and, and come on. And we had to start the show. So I started. I think I even announced his name in the beginning of the show in hopes that he was going to come on. And meanwhile, in another room, uh, John, who played Joey the monkey, um, was trying to, um, uh, you know, convince him to stay. And, um, he, uh, he, he, he uh, unsuccessfully and, uh, and he, I could hear them kind of getting loud in the, uh, in the next room as we were shooting the show because, uh, Sammy, Part of the deal was we were going to cover his cab fare there and back, and he was insisting on his five dollars to to uh, uh, to take a cab back. And John was telling him, "Well, you're not doing the show. Why would we do?" That? So I think he stormed off, and I I don't think he got his five dollars. I think it's pretty telling when your chief negotiator is um, Joey the Monkey. <laughs> when he's the guy who's trying to sort of to lower the temperature of things, like that's. Well, it was a bare bones crew. <laughs> Not only a bare bones crew, but one one of the very interesting things of going back and watching it, I, and I don't know if it's even in any sort of ostensible chronological order on YouTube. I certainly haven't been watching it that way. But the the evolution of the set design is pretty incredible. I mean, it never looked you know it never looked like there was a big budget, but it was so bare bones in the early days. Yeah. Well, we did. Um... We shot at three different studios, um, and over the 10 years, um, and the, the first studio we used was way up at the northern tip of Manhattan. And, and that was the one that, uh, was, uh, was more bare bones. Um, we, you know, it was so, it was such a long hike for us that we couldn't, there was only so much stuff we could carry because all that stuff that you'd see on the set was all packed into bags and you know, lugged into the studio. So, uh, so we were able to add more and more stuff as the, as the show moved down closer to where we were all living and, um, and yeah, things just evolved with the show. You know, we, we kind of developed some things, including the chaos of the set that just kind of developed more and more over, over time. Talk about having a small window of time. How long did it take to set it up every time? Um, we would have a very small window because, you know, we, um, uh, these studios, they were privately owned studios and they would charge, I think initially we paid $54 and 13 cents for a half hour. So wait, so was it through the station or this is an independent studio? Uh, they were independent studios. There were basically, uh, the original studio was, um, provided by the cable company, but that, that shut down, uh, pretty early on. And then the two studios that we kind of went back and forth, 
uh, between were privately owned. They were um, set up to meet the demand of people that you know needed a place to to create their shows. So, um, so you know they they would book like a um, a whole day, almost you know back to back every half hour. So we we would get very little time, basically about you know, ten minutes, and all of us would just spread out and just put something anywhere, any any blank space you find, put something up, and we'd grab any furniture we could find. Sometimes, you know, if there'd be an office with a an old easy chair, and we'd drag that in, and and um, you know, just trying to fill everything up as much as we could um, in a very short period of time. Um, so yeah, that, that chaos, uh, that chaotic look of the set was, uh, partly because it was created in chaos. <laughs> the other celebrity interview that I watched last night that I was alluding to that in some senses was sort of the polar opposite of Slayman and Fry. And I was genuinely shocked to see that you had had Quentin Crisp on the show. Well, I was amazed by the whole thing. When I was told it was going to be made into a television play, I thought it was a joke. Then when I found it went serious, I was even more amazed. Quentin, uh, who was really a really sweet guy, um, Quentin was known in New York for, he lived in a, a little basement apartment in the Lower East Side of New York. Um, and despite his his fame he he was in the phone book and if somebody called him and said would you like to go out for tea or dinner or he would do it and um so so it, it really wasn't challenging to to book quentin on the show i think quentin quentin was among the guests that just seemed genuinely confused and at times almost disdainful of of you know what was going on around him but we you know um at the time i had a car and that was when we were shooting way uptown and i uh i drove him back from the studio and he was very still very pleasant and um seemed happy so i i don't know i think you know there there was like a moment on the show where he's looking at, we had a mother daughter comedy team and he's looking at them with just, I just confusion and just, you know, and so I guess it just, maybe he was more puzzled than anything else. He wasn't accustomed to some of those guests that we had alongside him. Coco and Penny. Uh, Yes. Coco and Penny. Yes. I watched him last night and they do have a Facebook page. So, so, they're perhaps around to a certain degree. It was very interesting watching the three of you watch them. The you know the camera cuts back to you for a pretty long amount of time, and you know you and David are obviously in character. So you know, David probably doesn't crack a smile the entirety of the series, and I think your character at the time was kind of just general confusion, and then. You're flanking Quentin, and he he's stone faced as well. But then, after they're over, after they finish, you you ask him something along the lines of like, you know, what did you think of that? And he he gives some you know very 
constructive and positive feedback. It was really incredible to watch. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and I, you know, David genuinely was not likely entertained by them. I'm, I'm guessing. And, um, uh, we just lost Coco about two years ago. I think. Yeah. And, um, I don't think Penny is working solo anymore, unfortunately, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's, and you mentioned the cameras and, you know, one of the guys that worked on the show, uh, through all the years, my friend, Steve Korn, he, he was, uh, always in the director's booth and he was, you know, the guy that was, you know, while that's going on, I really want to see this person and what they're, how they're reacting to it, you know, and what, and what, what's going through it. Cause, cause in some cases it, you know, it was those, those people were really playing the part of, you know, people at home that were just maybe kind of looking the same puzzled way and, and trying to, you know, figure it out and, and assess what, what, what they were looking at because these weren't typical stand-ups and they weren't typical singers you know they're a lot of eccentrics and characters that you know were just beating marching to their own beat and, and um so anyway so i i think uh what you're referencing that idea of quentin just kind of looking and studying we always tried to capture that because that was uh that that was an interesting element to us in the show i'll watch something like kind of golden era golden era howard stern and the, you know there's some clearly he was watching somebody on staff was watching the show because they were you know <laughs> there, there was one episode where underdog lady and kenneth keith callenback were both on the the show so <laughs> clearly clearly you're feeding into them or i'll watch i don't know how familiar you are with tim and eric Mm-hmm. Yep. Obviously, there there's a very strong uh, affinity for some of the, the the cable access stuff, and they have again some of those. I don't know if there's any crossover in terms of people who appear on the show, but uh, but um, but obviously they have a, a strong affinity for it. But the the thing that I've always had difficulty with, and I don't know if you struggled with this at all, is walking that line between an affinity for what they do, an understanding that they are in fact eccentric while not feeling like you're exploiting them. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, honestly, this goes way back that this has been the type of programming that has entertained me. Right. Like I, um, you know, I grew up in, in high school, I was watching the uncle Floyd show who was a, like a soupy sales type that we had in the New York area and New Jersey you know, in, in high school, when kids were going to concerts at the Nassau Coliseum and stuff, I mean, the stuff that I was really drawn to were these performers who were marching to their own beat. And I would go to the downstairs lounge in Rockville Center in Long Island, where they would, uh, it was down at the bottom of Holiday Inn, and they would have guys like um, Stryker, who showed up on some of our early shows, and he was writing original songs about Long Island. And you know, really just with unusual melodies that were just coming out of his head and lyrics and, and so much more entertaining to me than, than um, a lot of the more mainstream stuff. So, 
you know, this show really was uh, uh, an outgrowth of of um, genuine fondness and affection for these performers, you know, and um, and it was it's in New York in the in the uh, 80s. We had a lot of these um, street performers, you know, and um, there was a guy that would dress up like Uncle Sam and do original songs. We had him on the show and. Yeah, I don't I never I never saw it as exploiting. I mean exploiting in the sense of giving people a platform, you know, and putting them on, but I never felt bad about it cuz I I genuinely enjoyed the people that we were watching, you know, and um I I'll listen to the the music of some of these performers the way you know somebody might put on a a favorite album or a favorite station or whatever like i you know I, it's it just speaks to me effectively you were giving them a platform to do what they were doing naturally i watched what howard stern was doing with some of these people and it's not the same thing oh in fact that's uncomfortable to me you know and it's yeah it, it's it's challenging to to watch, you know, when when uh, Suzanne Muldowney, the underdog woman who had done many, um, many of our shows, once she started doing Howard Stern and it got really harsh, you know, um, the the way that her appearances would would end up on her on his show. I don't know how much of it was really from Howard because he seemed to really like her, genuinely like her, but. Just being in that environment um, was a bad fit for her, and um, yeah, I never, I, I, I never uh, wanted to have someone like Suzanne on and and um, disparage her because I, I really admire what she does. You know, she she does these uh, these her her outfits and her capes with all this intricate sewing i mean she's she's really gifted you know in in a lot of ways um yeah i i never uh, i never i i always wanted everyone appearing on the show to feel they were being celebrated and eventually i went over um to become a producer at jimmy kimmel live and we used to have people like Suzanne on and we we did a segment called future talent showcase and, and, you know, it was the same thing where they would be given, you know, their, their minute or so to perform and then Jimmy would interview them. And, um, and it was all done with, you know, love and admiration. And, you know, Jimmy's a, a, a big collector of focal art, you know, so I think, he, uh, there definitely was a part of him that really, you know, appreciated what these people were doing. I don't know if we call it outsider art anymore, but that's, I guess that, yeah, that's what you I would guess. have referred to it. Yeah. Yeah. He's obviously, he's also coming from the angle of, of being a big Howard Stern fan too. So I, I don't know if that's how you ended up being on the show at all. Was that connection? Well, I, you know, I started, uh, at Jimmy Kimmel Live. I had, uh, when I first, moved to LA after I'd been in New York for a number of years. Uh, I 
had gotten in touch with Tom Arnold, who had been on, you know, been on Beyond Vaudeville. And he said, oh, wow, you know, I'm actually uh, getting ready to host a pilot for a new version of The Gong Show. And and The Gong Show was a, a, a huge inspiration for me, like the original one with Chuck Barris. And, and um, so... So I did. I worked on that pilot. Unfortunately, it didn't get picked up. But I met another producer there who um, was uh, ended up working at Jimmy Kimmel Live, a guy, Jason Schrift. And um, I ran into him. He was walking his dog in, in L.A. And I was like, oh, Jason, how are you doing? And And he looked at me. And I was like, what, what, what's going on? And he's going, he said, I, you know, you would be just the right guy for our human interest. We need a new person. And, uh, I would, I, I was like, oh, of course, you know, it was work. And, and it was fantastic. You know, it was just all these people, Izzy Fertel, the tiny Tim's protege, Suzanne. Uh, oh my God. There were so many people that, that, uh, this guy Bob three three um, all all these eccentric performers uh, and it was a it was a and and ones that I had I that I you know got to know through doing that show um, there was uh, Linda and Gerald Polly from North Dakota who were channeling the music of uh, John Lennon from the Afterlife um, and. Um, it really was, it was great. We had a, it, it was very early on that Jimmy came alive and there was a lot of room for experimentation and Jimmy kind of was, you know, he was totally on board with, you know, treating them all respectfully and giving them their platform and, and ABC, you know, I, who knows if they even knew what we were doing in that play box sandbox at that point, you know, and I think just the mere fact that you are, in touch with some of them and that, that at very least, you know, you continue to, to track their careers is a sign that you do, that you, that you do genuinely appreciate what they do. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, otherwise I, I, you know, there's, there's just no way because, you know, a lot of the guests we've had uh, required a lot of patience, you know, um, uh, booking Suzanne and uh, um repeatedly it was a lot of work you know so it really if if i if yeah if i didn't if i didn't enjoy it or enjoy being with them it i I never would have done it (laughs) it would have been too much work for too little return was oddville in new york uh oddville was in new york also um yeah we so after uh 10 years of doing the public access show um it really felt like it was winding down. I was kind of ready to to move on and stop doing it. And then, of course, get a call from MTV and and uh, asking if we wanted to come in and do um, a version of the show for MTV. So, uh, of course, you know, we jumped at it and we ended up shooting 66 episodes. And uh, it was challenging because we had to do it in a short period of time. Everyone had to come from the New York area. We didn't have a budget to fly people in. So, you know, and we were shooting multiple shows a day, up to three episodes a day with a celebrity, a band, and anywhere between, I don't know, usually about a half dozen guests. So 
it was uh it was a tall order we we um we were able to bring on guests that we had had over the years on the original show but we you know had to search wider so we ended up going and doing auditions at colleges and finding you know people like um Eugene the human doormat who liked to lay down put a doormat on his body and have people vacuum him um you know there i, I <laughs> there were there were more people to be found we we discovered but it was a it was a lot we had to book i mean i would say you know even in spite of the tight turnaround there there's there's a level of spontaneity that you're just not going to get on mtv in the same way oh yeah i mean nothing i've been working now since beyond vaudeville and in you know commercial tv and um it's it's rare that you can get you know the 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 real um pure expression and freedom from notes that you know you get in in the professional world you know that that public access show was a very you know pure expression of what we wanted to do and and there there weren't uh there weren't other people giving us no one was giving us notes you know <laughs> the only notes we got were letters to our po box from viewers you know <laughs> saying what they liked but um uh yeah so yeah there there was a lot about it that was really fun creatively on from that point if you are interested in in watching the show there's there's an active youtube channel that has i think it's mostly beyond vaudeville but it are also oddville episodes on there and it, and it's clear looking at them that as you were having conversations with MTV they had some notes early on number 1 you know fairly professional band playing at, at the ends i think blink 182 is on in so far as blink 182 is a professional band uh, on the end of one and then they brought in a new co-host as well it's clear that they were they were going after a specific demographic that maybe beyond vaudeville didn't care, cater to yeah, I mean, we never, uh, we never, obviously, when we did Beyond Vaudeville, there was no pressure to, you know, have younger guests in the mix. I mean, to MTV's credit, they, they did, there wasn't any kind of age limit. You know, we did have a lot of old timers on there, which was like hard to believe, you know, given that it was MTV and their demographics and, um, but yeah, we had uh, Melissa, the the uh, female announcer, was added. Um, I had to dye my hair, even though I had, you know, started going gray in high school. <laughs> but but you know that that had to happen. Were you not dyeing your hair on Beyond Vaudeville? Was that that was uh, real gray? No, no, I started going gray. You know, like at sixteen, and and um, so. Yeah. So, but you know, when it when it came time for MTV, it was like, no, no gray-haired people on MTV. Certainly not hosting a a show. Um, so, yeah. So, there definitely were changes, you know. And yes, having to have also the the celebrity guest and the band, they were both booked by MTV's departments, you know. So um, we would end up working with whoever was booked they worked out in a lot of cases and a lot of these people went on to 
a lot of success, you know, a lot of the bands and, but yeah, I mean, they, they weren't typical. Uh, they wouldn't have been typical bookings for us by any means uh, when we were doing the Beyond Vaudeville. I would think that at that level on a station like that, when you're dealing with professional actors, a lot of folks you had on were coming from TV shows that you would almost, they would almost feel necessary to prep them for what was going to go on. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, because in that case, those guests on, uh, on Oddville and MTV were booked by the MTV talent department. So I'm not sure what their process was, but, you know, in, in terms of if they, you know, gave them any, well, they probably didn't have any clips to show the people because we had to shoot the whole bulk of them in a period of like, a, I don't know, two months or something. Uh, so the full season, like a season at yeah, a time. Yeah. I mean, it, it really, you know, it's the only way to make the numbers work in TV is to just, you know, shoot a lot of them as you have the studio and the crew all together. And yeah, so they didn't, it's not like they even had video to show the guests unless, unless they showed them beyond vaudeville, but that's probably unlikely because that might've, that probably would have scared off a lot of people. But, you know, there were times when uh, like we had the band uh, Chibo Motto on and, um, and um um you know uh, uh Sean uh, Lennon was uh dating one of the the women in the band and so he came on to perform with them and uh he sought us out when he got to the studio cuz he had been a big fan of the show when it was on in New York and so and that would happen every so often you know um even though it was public access public access had a at that time had a pretty high profile in New York, you know, there'd be, um, it, it was always surprising the number of people that, uh, we would discover, watch the show and would approach us in the street. Or if we did a live show somewhere, the turnout we would get would be, you know, significant. It was people really had a, an affection for, um, public access at that time. It was the YouTube of the, of the eighties. Beyond Vaudeville last, I think you said about 10 years, Vaudeville was on, what two seasons it was actually on one season it was on for uh probably about a year because we we aired uh every night at 7 7 30 and 11 i think or 7 30 and 11 30 and then they would rerun them so um but that was essentially one season 66 episodes i'm in new york now but i i grew up in the bay area mm -hmm. so i was not familiar i think with beyond vaudeville until fairly recently and rediscovered it of all things i was looking for sammy petrillo interviews and oh okay yeah very 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 excellent well, he, he appeared on a couple times well I, actually one time i was jerry lewis but uh, i i decided that uh, you, you know it's like winning the academy award you you don't get uh, that many jobs once you're a star see so i i just changed my name to sammy petrillo so i can do shows like this, work nightclubs here and there, and occasional bar mitzvah. It was that interesting thing of feeling like Beyond Vaudeville was kind of familiar, and then discovering Oddville and realizing that oh yeah, that this is a this is just a sort of a weird thing that I had seen that was existed somewhere somewhere in in my brain. <laughs> I know you said that Beyond Vaudeville wasn't necessarily an outlier from other 
cable access shows that were going out of time, but Oddville was absolutely an outlier from uh, the, the other things that were happening on MTV. Was it was it not a good fit ultimately? Why did it only last that one year? Yeah, I you know they did a lot of um, experimentation that year. It was like a it was a big. Um, it was a big year of experimentation. They did their Would first. This have been like liquid television era. Yeah, that was there. There was a show called Austin Stories um, that was scripted comedy drama. They did a uh, they did a sitcom called Apartment Two F with the Sklar Brothers, uh, like a three camera sitcom with an audience. It was just um, it was a it was a year of experimentation and they launched something called the 10 spot and it was going to be starting at 10 p.m. And it was, you know, us and these other shows. Um, and it just yeah, it was. You know, the, the reality of MTV at that time, it probably still is, is that their audience was predominantly tween girls, like girls ages 12 to 14. And um you know, and, and that, so, you know, something like us in that environment is just, just weird, you know, like, I don't know. I, you know, I mean, now you mentioned uh, Tim and Eric earlier, you know, er- Eric Andre, like has, has, you know, mentioned us as a, an influence. Adult swim shows were clearly pretty influenced. Yeah. I mean, Tim and Eric, they would have this guy on James Qual. Who, you know, James didn't have an act until I met him. I met him at a, uh, he was at a uh, Hollywood collector's show out here uh, in Studio City and uh, at the Holiday Inn and um, started talking him up because he just seemed like an interesting guy and and eccentric. And I was uh, working at uh, Jimmy Kimmel Live at the time and, and, um, uh, so I'm talking to him and, and I would often do this if I found someone who was interesting at a comic convention or on the street or in a store, I would just start talking to them and and find out if they had some sort of hidden talent or if they had some dream of maybe one day being a singer or um, or if all else failed, you know, I'd say, well, come on anyway, and we'll call you a raconteur or we'll, we'll, we'll call you a science, you know, you, you like Star Trek. So we'll make you a Star Trek expert, you know, a ventriloquist dummy. Yes. <laughs> you know, so, so I was having a similar discussion with James Qual and, um, all of a sudden he reveals that he's really into, beach movies from the 1950s and and 60s and i was like oh this is interesting how you know i mean frankie and annette kind of yeah beach ball and all those you know those those movies that you know i mean most people if you ask them well what's your favorite genre of movies or what are your favorite movies it's a godfather it's whatever and this guy is saying the beach movies you know from the 60s which were throwaways most of them right they were just and um and uh said oh really and he said yes and actually i've uh written a couple of screenplays about these movies i was like really and he wrote spec scripts uh, yes he wrote spec scripts for a genre that had been gone for 50 years there was back to the beach i will correct you on that (laughs) that's true uh that's true um and uh so 
uh, and he had written original songs for them. So, so I brought him in to audition and he, he didn't make it, he didn't make the cut. Um, but then, you know, fast forward <laughs> a couple of years later, I see on Tim and Eric, there's James Qualls singing one of his beach songs. And I was like, wow, <laughs> I'm glad they, I'm glad they saw it and saw a platform for him. You had alluded to the fact earlier that by the time MTV came along, you were ready to hang it up and I guess uh, probably move on to the next thing. But even in that case, it has to be difficult to suddenly have this huge national or I guess international platform. And then a year later, it's gone. Well, um, it was, yeah, it was disappointing. I mean, we were hoping to keep going because we couldn't even, um, you know, when you, when you have to produce the entire run in that short a period of time, there's no room for adjusting really. So, you know, a lot of shows, if they get past that, if they can get over the hump of that first season, you know, I don't know if you remember in, in the early days of Conan O'Brien, like it was just, they were going to pull the plug every few months. It would have been great to get a chance to, you know, tweak it a little bit. And, and, um, but you know, it, it offered me an opportunity to, to kind of cross over into commercial TV. And, you know, I got to do a lot of interesting things, uh, continue to get to do a lot of interesting things in TV. And uh, I, I did, you know, right after that, I I um, was doing a recurring segment on The Daily Show where I was introducing public access clips. Um, uh, this kind is of, Craig Kilborn era? Uh, for the last year of Craig and the first year of John, um, I was there and then I moved out to L.A. Um, so, uh, yeah, it would be uh, this recurring segment called Public Access, and they're all out there, the Comedy Central's website, and um, just showing clips from my vast collection that I, you know, would record off air from the Public Access channels and, you know, just making little comments about the clips. And, yeah, so um, – and, you know, it it, it continues the this this human interest type um booking you know i i've just it it's played into a lot of the shows that i've worked on and yeah um and and in other ways too like i i um you know i i ended up uh working on uh, fear factor like producing all the the gross stuff on the show and and you know that came about because i had a, a meeting no one knew what that show was supposed to be it was supposed to be a a bomb you know <laughs> We were a mid-season. With some re- guy from news radio that has has not been heard from since. Yes, yeah, that guy. Uh, what was his name? Um, but <laughs> yeah, so <clears throat> nothing about that show made sense, you know. And uh, the network didn't know what the hell it was, and and it just succeeded in spite of all that. But uh, but on my interview, they said. You know, uh, this isn't going to sound weird now, but at the time it was weird. They were like, well, this show is going to involve people eating bugs. And, you know, how do you feel about that? And I said, well, on Oddville, you know, we had just had an insectivore on the show and eating live crickets. And that was it. I got the job. (laughs) So, you know, it's, there's, oh, you know, I've been able to find those ins in TV where there's a little room for something a little different. So 
Not quite as different as Beyond Vaudeville, but you've had a very charmed career in just in terms of you know of, of meeting the right people on, at the right time. W- would you say though, in in hindsight, overall, that Oddville was a good experience for you? Oddville was definitely a good experience because I mean it's where I learned real production versus Beyond Vaudeville. I mean, I you know I could, I you know I could still be doing Beyond Vaudeville today and weighing myself down with a bunch of, um, you know, suitcases filled with props and going into a, a cheap studio. And I guess I'd probably be doing it on YouTube now, but you know, it's, it's, um, uh, it's, I, I like that I've been able to do work professionally and work in a professional environment. So, you know, Oddville definitely opened up doors for me that way. And there definitely were a lot of, uh, moments in Oddville that I really love and I'm really proud of, you know, so yeah, but be, you know, beyond Vaudeville is that's, you know, that's, that's really the, the firstborn, you know, that <laughs> always has a special place in my heart. Sure. And in a pure vision, it was right from your brain or, or the group of your brain onto the set, which, which is not something you get on MTV and certainly, you know, as I I, right. I hear Jay Leno is a very nice guy, but there's a lot of executives and everything else you have to deal with. I it's I I, I love that it's that it's all back online and, and that you know that I've been able to spend time with it and and it does really make it makes a lot of sense in YouTube. I mean, as as you said, there is a there's an analog there, and you know we we connected through the the Facebook group that you have. Um, mm-hmm. it, it seems like there's a, a a sense in which lately you've kind of been reconnecting with the old shows well you know we we put the shows up on youtube and um you know just to just to kind of keep them alive you know and uh and we were thrilled to see that people started discovering it you know people like yourself and people from other parts of the world that just never had access to it never saw and he, you know, never saw any shows from the eighties on public access and, um, and a, a younger generation that, you know, don't even know some of these legends like Imogene Coca and Professor Irwin Corey. And, you know, so, um, uh, so it's, it's, and weirdly, I, you know, I'm finding like with younger people that are responding to the show, I think in some ways, they can relate more to those shows than what, you know, networks are currently trying to produce. Cause I, you know, the networks today are producing largely for, uh, you know, an older audience, like what's left of, you know, of audiences and broadcast TV, you know, it's, it tends to be an older crowd and, you know, that, that kind of uh, loose, feel that is more akin to you know youtube and twitter and instagram it's just um it 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 does kind of uh weirdly speak to like a new generation one of the things that i also stumbled on in the process was a interview that you and david did at a festival fairly recently both both in character was that the first time Frank Cope had returned since Oddville. Um, yeah, pretty. I I would say pretty much. Um, uh, we 
we were invited by um, uh, Philomoka. It's uh, this this really great uh, performance space in Philadelphia, and uh, there's a guy there, the guy that runs it. Eric Bresler was uh, reached out again through you know he discovered the show on YouTube and Facebook and and uh, invited us uh, out there to to just kind of you know. Uh, get the band back together, you know, and, uh, for, for one night and, and, um, and we show up there and they, they were really just so nice to us. They, they, you know, they flew us out there and, and they, uh, uh, we get into the, uh, space and there's like a complete recreation of the set, um, that they just did on their own right down to like the Mr. T head on the desk, you know, they really like, did a great job with it. And fortunately, um, Suzanne, uh, underdog lady was, um, uh, in the, she lives in that region. So she was able to come on as a guest. And we had a guy, uh, Stanless Steel, who was a strong man uh, from that area who came on Oddville a couple of times. And, um, another guy who had done a song about, uh, he, he did original songs about Chinese food and, um, um, uh, other interesting topics. Anyway, we, yeah, we, um, we got to just do the show again. It, it was really fun. Uh, people were very receptive to it. And even though we never, um, we never aired in Philadelphia, but, you know, there was a, there was a good audience there and, and supportive. So like, I guess they were finding it, you know, through the internet. Was it easy to step back into those shoes? Uh, oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, you do something for 10 years. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it definitely is something we both slipped very comfortably back into. 